Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to us today. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, I'm joined by another dietitian, Susan Bloomfield Stone, as we take some time during Malnutrition Week to you know, consider the nutritional issues facing older adults in our community. There's been so much focus recently on food and nutrition within an aged care setting with the Royal Commission. But we know that the vast majority of older adults are living in the community rather than any aged care homes, and they're facing the very same issues that put them at risk of malnutrition. So health conditions, cognitive decline, physical decline, changes to appetite, ability to access and prepare food, as well as social isolation. The theme of Malnutrition Week Australia New Zealand this year is be a nutrition champion because we can all play a role in improving nutritional care. And Susan Bloomfield-Stone definitely fits the bill of a nutrition champion. She's an accredited practicing dietitian currently working in the Malnutrition Intervention Clinic at Concord Hospital in Sydney. She has a wealth of clinical experience across a variety of medical specialty and has spent her career working in several different metropolitan tertiary teaching hospitals. Susan has a profound interest in patient and family-centred care and is committed to helping her patients achieve their nutrition goals through a combination of evidence-based practices and a nurturing, holistic care approach. So welcome to our podcast today, Susan. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jane, and thanks for having me. I'm, that certainly sounded like a nice introduction to have, <laughs> so I hope I can live up to that. Well, as you said, you've got quite a bit of experience as a dietitian, and so we can sort of get to know you a bit better. Can you just give me a bit of a history of your career path and how you've ended up in this current role? I can. It, it feels like a bit of a long journey now. I must be getting older. But um, look, I, I went into dietetics knowing I wanted to work in hospitals. I knew that from the, the get-go. I wanted to help sick people eat and get better. Um, so after graduation, I was lucky enough to land a, a couple of locums in, in major tertiary hospitals, and I got to work across a wide range of clinical areas. So I got a lot of exposure Then, um, luckily, came my first permanent role where I specialised in TPN and gastro, which were great. But then I fell into management, which is something that I had wanted to pursue and I I did really love. But, Jane, you know, a few years of that, then along came the kids. And while I can remember assuring my boss at the time that I'd be back on deck within three months, (laughs) What was I thinking? I was delusional because... I've heard that so many times from young dietitians. It's like, I can sleep, feed, play, cycle, be. You know, I didn't even know what it meant. I thought you breastfed a baby for 10 minutes and then had three hours off. But no. Anyway, um, I had three children in under two and a half years. So 
look, out of necessity, I took a wonderful career break and I don't regret that at all. I had intended to go back to work when the littlest one got got bigger, but my plans were really thwarted when he became very sick with, with cancer and that meant that he and I had to live in the children's hospital for over a year. And oh, good heavens. Yeah, that, that was quite difficult and he really did have the, have the fight of his little life. But, you know, while something like that is tumultuous and it's, it's tricky and it's um, very, very challenging, there's a lot of positives and I, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it, but there, a lot of positives do emerge. And for, one of the, for me, one of those things was having the time to think about what sort of clinician I was and what I wanted to be. Living in a hospital... I know we've all got a lot of experience but and, and many of us in this a similar situation, but when you live in a hospital, you really experience firsthand the difference between a, a really good clinician mm. and an, an absolutely amazing clinician who isn't just an expert in what they do but um, is driven by their, their very genuine quality patient-focused care and not just in that buzzword sense of the word or sense of sense of way I mean the the way where patient focus and empathy is really ingrained in their their clinical ethos and behavior and it really comes through so with that from that I decided I didn't want to be just a tick of the box tick the box dietitian I wanted to really have an impact on people so if that meant changing my practice well then that's what I wanted to do so you know, to cut the story short, when the time was right, I again resumed a management role um, and that's what I was used to doing. That's what my skill was. But it, the combination of a full-time workload and, t- to be honest, acute work, which I was still a little bit damaged from, mm. um, wasn't fitting with what my responsibilities at home were. So my boss at the time suggested I apply for the newly created malnutrition intervention clinic role and amazingly I landed it and I'm still there today and I have to say hand on heart I love the role Jane it's um I feel it's perfect for me I adore the fact that there's not a day go by where I'm not challenged and you know while some people might think oh a malnutrition intervention clinic might be fairly repetitive you're dealing with aged care nutrition support it's not that complex web of very very you know highly complex clinical tests um, yeah um i i have to say it it is very special and it does bring rewards and it's very challenging it's a role that makes a difference to people and i see that every day and it just doesn't work unless you are sort of committed to being being patient-centred. Yeah. I feel very lucky that I've, I've found that little niche. And, and um, so just out of interest, how long was your career break then? Oh, wow. Well, it was quite a while. So it was seven and a half years. So I had, um, I had five years off with children and then I did, I had a year and a half doing private practice. But, yeah, it was about seven, seven and a half years. So I was doing things in between. I was helping my colleagues at RPA. I was sort of doing some paper writing on the side and things like that. But, yeah, seven, seven and a half years. But I think actually that, and this is not the topic of our conversation necessarily, but that's even a good thing for young 
dietitians who are taking career breaks um, to keep in mind that it doesn't mean the end of your career. Like it can go on hold and you can come back to something better or more productive or more rewarding than what you had envisaged beforehand. So it doesn't, you don't have to be despondent that the career's finished. Absolutely. And Jane, that's why I sort of put that in my my response to your question, because definitely I will say having a career break was the best thing I ever did because one, I have no guilt about family. You know, as women, we do have family work balance and challenges. It's really, really hard. I didn't have any of that because I knew where I wanted to go clinically and in my profession, but I knew what I wanted to do as a family member as well. And I've managed to, I feel very content with where I am now and I have no regrets and it it just really worked for me. So you can do it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a good lesson to learn. So the setting that you're working in now, your, your malnutrition intervention clinic, can you tell us like how it came about? Because you said it was newly set up when you got into it. How did it come about? What's the referral process? What are the types of clients that you see there? Yep. I can. So the malnutrition intervention clinic, and we call it the MIC for short. So I can, I yep, use sure. <laughs> so you don't get sick of me saying that. But look, it lives within within Concord Hospital, and for those listeners that don't know, that's in Sydney's inner west. So it's one of the big teaching hospitals in 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 Concord, in in Sydney, in Concord. It fall the malnutrition clinic falls under the umbrella of aged and chronic care rehab. So it sits within a specialised aged care day hospital. Um, excitingly, in February, we moved into a very swanky new building that has everything that opens and shuts. So it's a nice change from going from an old building where we mm. had to share rooms and always be sort of being shunted out here, there and everywhere, to having these amazing rooms with our body composition scales parked in there next to us and all our bits and pieces right there and, and counselling tables and everything. So I feel very lucky um, and it's nice to hear the patients actually comment on that. It, it, it's it's very special. Um, we sit alongside the other day hospital services, allied health services, dementia counsellor, spe- nursing specialties, Parkinson's clinics. So it's a very comprehensive care day hospital. The clinic itself was created in 2014 by Suzanne Kennywell, who is the current director of nutrition and dietetics in Sydney Local Health District. Now, at the time, she envisioned a clinic whose sole focus was to address the issue of malnutrition within our older community dwelling people. And, you know, through her efforts and her inspired work, she managed to be awarded a subacute funding grant, which actually made this come to fruition. And um, the clinic has been going for almost eight years now. To be eligible for the service, um, Clients need to be living in the community. They need to be malnourished or at risk of malnutrition. And for this particular clinic, they need to be over 65 years of age. We don't accept patients that require dietetic education for any other clinical issues or comorbidities. So, for example, you know, we we wouldn't accept a referral that was primarily to educate someone on thickened fluids or potassium or diabetes. But if those things aligned with the malnutrition they were referred for well then obviously we we sort of deal with that as well um where do referrals come from primarily they come from the hospital-based and local geriatrician so that would be the bulk of them I think at the moment we're sitting at about 60 70 percent of my referrals come from geriatricians but there's also a lot that come from other local specialists general medical staff 
lot of GPs, um, and the more the clinic's known, the more they're increasing. Hospital and community nursing, allied health, my aged care assessors and RAS assessors, and um, also internal and external dietitians. So we we get the full spectrum of referrals, which is is nice because, you know, when we respond to those referrals, it's getting the message out there about malnutrition and, you know, that this is a, a service that really is here to to help this, this vulnerable group. And if they're coming from those sorts of diverse areas and other professional groups, so are they generally, and I imagine that nutrition screening is not standard amongst some of those more community-based um, settings. So do they just sort of get a sense that someone's losing weight or not eating or, you know, what triggers the referral? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the majority of the referrals are clinicians who are concerned about their unintentional weight loss yeah. or poor appetite or just evident frailty of their their people. Yeah. And, you know, they are on the ball, which is great because they're, they're the eyes and ears. They're, mm. they're out there in the community, so they're picking it up. So it's really good that we... We try and respond quickly and and get onto it for them. So, yeah. So those are very big referrers. Mentioning malnutrition screen, screening, the aged care service within Sydney Local Health District Concord Hospital as well has mandatory MST. Oh, okay. So anyone that comes into the aged care service to see a geriatrician, to see a dementia counsellor, to see you know whoever, um, the the clinic nursing staff perform MST screening and anything above a three generates an automatic referral to right. the malnutrition clinic, which is just great. Um, referrals are submitted online. Um, they're triaged, they're, they're scheduled. We aim to see high-priority patients within naught to two weeks and and more less, less high-priority ones within four weeks. I'll admit that doesn't always happen, you know, depending on the, the demand. Lately, our waiting list has been very, very very long post-COVID. We've been trying mm. to do catch-up. Um, so there's been great demand and we haven't always been been meeting that, but, but that's our goal and that's what we try and stick to. When thinking about the purpose of the clinic, what I love about the Malnutrition Clinic is it it's a clinic that we've made um, to recognise the challenges that many older people have in getting out to appointments as well as the fatigue and the stress that can accompany that um so through the way via the way we've we've set up the, the bookings the clinic we've allocated longer for appointments so we can really gain that rapport with people i know not everyone can do that but we we have had that ability um the accr so the acute the the aged care chronic care rehab service also has its own driver service so you know oh, they wow. I know it's such a an amazing thing. They go and actually pick up a patient as long as they're within within, yeah. within area, and they'll take them home at the end of the appointment, not in a bus, but individually delivered and and picked up. Now, for some people, that's just the the difference between them getting assistance or not. So it's a very valuable thing, um, and and makes a big difference to to patients' access to the service. Yeah, I'm sure you must have. That must be an enormous barrier to people yeah, not yeah. being able to bother. And also, I imagine sometimes they may see a nutrition appointment as less important and as some exactly of their other appointments. Right. Appointments. That's exactly right. And also it, it eases the burden a little bit on the families as well. Mm. You know what it's like, you have to take time off work to 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 get your, your parent yeah. or your family member to an appointment. And when there's a lot of appointments, yeah. you know, that 
becomes quite um, quite difficult. So it is just an extra thing. And the other thing I, I thought I'd mention, you know, our clinic, well, prior to COVID, not, not so much now because of the rules, but prior to COVID, we always had tea, coffee, biscuits, sandwiches there for the, the patients. And, and as well as making it a bit nicer and making it that, you know, more comfortable for them and more, more attractive, for some of our very malnourished or socially isolated patients, that was the most food they'd eat all day. And so, mm. you know, there were many instances you'd see them walking away with a <laughs> really walk out, you know. Doggy bag. Yeah. <laughs> Piles of sandwiches hidden in there. But, you know, it, it was nice to see that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're talking about some of those, the challenges, you know, that you see um, and, you know, just actually getting to see the patients is one challenge. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are so many, as I mentioned at the top, challenges for older adults and, you know, nutrition challenges wherever they're living. What what are the sort of common ones you see and, and what are some of your strategies? I'm sure yeah. people appreciate any advice or any tips you have. Yeah, look, I've got, I've definitely, there's challenges. I'll start by saying we're lucky in the malnutrition clinic because the the patient profile tends to be a very motivated group because they're not acutely sick in hospital. They've presented to the referral and they've made the effort to present themselves. That goes an awful long way in patient engagement. So um, we're really, we're we're starting off from a good point. Just actually, sorry, on that point, so if people are referred, I assume that they're not told they're coming to you because they're at risk of malnutrition. I mean, there must be, I, I guess they've been, told something else what do they come in thinking that they're seeing you for well it's it's funny that you ask that because I've been doing a bit of an audit because I was getting a lot of cases where people would turn up and I'd say okay so so what's your understanding of why you're here don't know have no idea I think I'm doing amazingly and so there was a real disconnect there between the about why someone's referred so they basically got a referral with not necessarily any explanation (laughs) to improve their diet but now that's really improving so I think that the reason for referral is about addressing their unintentional weight loss. And they know it's to the malnutrition clinic. And I'll touch on that name in a minute because that's an interesting point. Um, But, yeah, most of them are now definitely starting to become more aware and the families definitely. You know, 50, 60% of my patients have dementia. So, you know, it's often for the family members Mm. they're coming to get that assistance. So, yeah, challenges. Okay, Definitely some challenges. And like any clinic, we have our usual admin failure to attend, you know, scheduling challenges. But I put those aside because I don't think they're unique. I think we all um, um, we all experience those. What I wanted to just mention today was some some challenges that I find in this clinic. So it may not, they're my experience, they may not be experienced by other people, but I just wanted to share them because I think they're quite um quite worthwhile exploring. Number one challenge is the identification of malnutrition. I think that's still an area that as a community we fall short in. So while we as dietitians can, you know, nail it, we have screening tools, mm. we have MAs, you name it, it's not really happening as such in the community. And even, you know, even GPs, nursing stuff, it's still very common to get those, that feedback, oh, you know, so-and-so's, they weigh 90 kilos, they're not malnourished, they've got enough yeah. fat on to 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 get through they don't need a referral and so it's a sad thing to see something preventable go undetected so that's probably number one challenge just continuing that education about what is malnutrition 
and why is it important? And obviously that ties into the work that Dietitian Connection does with things like Malnutrition Week, such a valuable, important thing that we all need to, to jump in on. Um, another big challenge is, for me, unravelling the legacy of other very successful health messaging and nutrition marketing. By that I mean the, the health messages that we've given throughout the years, particularly to old people, they become very entrenched. <laughs> so when we say to people, you know, when I I can remember years and years ago, the message was, you know, we don't want too much milk, you know, you don't want to eat too many egg yolks, you know. <laughs> now yeah. it's you want to eat five veggies and two fruits a day or, you know, having red meat every day isn't amazing. Now we know we're targeting prevention of chronic disease and, and lifestyle-related disease, but it's amazing how people in the context of malnutrition who are trying to get a grasp on their health, they're suddenly experiencing health hiccups and they're scared, they grasp onto those things and actually become very, very um, fixated on not having mid-meals and not doing this and not having sugar because they're trying to improve their health. So for me, it's about unravelling those and trying to get them to see different rules for different situations yeah my mother was following was having her cholesterol lowering margarine and milk well well into her 80s it doesn't matter no no my dad still won't drink a drop of milk and it's (laughs) it's, they don't listen but you know that's that's very typical and it's it's a real problem and and it just shows we were very good at getting that message through Mm. now we've got to be very good at getting through that it's a message for a particular (laughs) not everyone um reframing another challenge I don't want to talk too long sorry Jane but reframing is another thing that I feel is a challenge people when I I can remember doing home economics all those years back in school it was drilled into us you know nutritional needs change through the life cycle and what you feed and what you require as an infant is different to an athlete it's different to Mm. someone pregnant or a working male or that message seems to have been forgotten by the general population. So people aren't changing their eating habits as they progress through the stages of life. So that's a very big focus of my education of people in the malnutrition clinic, just trying to get them to reframe, relax certain rules and, you know, focus a bit more on other priorities. Next one, complexities of malnutrition. We know malnutrition is a complex problem. It's a very wicked and, and you know, far-reaching problem. And when something is so complex, it often requires significant case management. So when people come to the malnutrition clinic, it's not just an in and out and, okay, you're educated, off you go. It, there is a lot of referral, a lot of sort of follow-up, and it, it is a very case managing sort of load. Competing comorbidities is another one. Getting people to realise that at this point in time where they are, malnutrition needs to be the priority focus. And so while diabetes and cardiovascular disease and their chronic kidney disease are all really important and certainly not to be discounted, there's no point managing those amazingly Mm. if you're losing two kilos a week because you're not eating anything. And that's a hard one to get across as well, even to the family members. So um, that's the other one. The term malnutrition, it's controversial. Mm. It's a problem, isn't it? (laughs) I know. It it takes me back to the the debates we used to have about obesity and do we use that harsh clinical obesity or do we 
be more euphemistic and you know you're above what we'd like to you to mm. be and uh, you know who knows right or wrong answer but I know in my clinic the term malnutrition is definitely associated with a feeling of um neglect I've I've failed um guilt all those things get tied up, all those emotions get tied up with the term malnutrition. So when they're referred to the malnutrition intervention clinic, which is what you alluded to before, there's a little bit of work for me to do as soon as they come in the room. So I start by making sure they really understand what malnutrition means and it's not necessarily anything that they've done or it's not no one's laying the finger of blame but it's something a complex problem that we need to address for these reasons we've toyed at the idea of changing the name of the malnutrition intervention clinic some doctors like to refer to it as the undernutrition clinic the frailty clinic but it's not though it, that's not what it is um, we yeah. don't just deal with so we've left it as malnutrition intervention clinic but i do sort of make sure we we talk about that term my final two challenges are the challenge of measuring nutrition outcomes. I think we all agree that that's difficult in nutrition. We can I collect a lot of outcome measurements in, in, in the service that I work in, but it's about putting a dollar value on those and actually um, really um, definitively associating them with, you know, length of stay, falls, um, and, and showing that it's our nutritional intervention that's improving those outcomes. So it's a work, you know, I think it's something that we all need to keep working on, but certainly if we can start keep collecting those outcomes, particularly patient responsive ones, giving them giving their feedback, it, it helps in the process. And my final challenge is really the emotional drain of dealing with the, the hard issues of life. I mean, in an aged care malnutrition clinic, every day it's it's brief, it's... Um, food insecurity, it's care stress and exhaustion. It's the the impact of, of dementia. It's it's loneliness, social isolation, and it's really hard. And when you're back-to-back -back mm. appointments, you know, you're giving a lot of yourself and that's our job. But I have to say at the end of the day, <laughs> you Exhausted. get home, all of a sudden there's a, there's a real appeal to the missing lunch boxes and the home. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it provides that that real life balance as well. So, yeah. In a nutshell, they're the probably. Yeah. The so, you yeah. talk about um, the outcomes, and obviously, you can't just provide nutrition intervention is not just something short lived. Like it's it takes longer than two weeks to to get some of those outcomes. Um, so, I guess there's two parts to that. One is how long do you sort of keep seeing patients for or what do you set up in the community to continue with your sort of nutrition interventions to make sure that it's not just for the next couple of weeks and then they stop doing it? Yeah, great question and it's such an important part of our continuum of care. Um, I always believe, you know, it, it's identifying those community supports that are going to make goal achievement possible. If you don't identify them, you're sort of running a race with your ankle mm. tied together. You've got someone sitting in your clinic um, in, a, in an environment far removed from their normal living conditions. You're not in their kitchen. You can't see their fridge. You can't see their access to the supermarket. You've got them for maybe an hour. So you've got to be thinking of all the things that could be helping them to make these um, long-term changes. So you've got to be thinking holistically. 
for me in my clinic, it would be highly unusual if I didn't make um, immediate referrals to some of the the adjacent allied health services that work with me, you know, speech pathologists, physio for physical access, things like accessing kitchen cupboards and being able to carry yeah. shop bags home. It's those little things, um, dementia counsellor to help with food refusal and the, the behavioural symptoms of dementia, um, dental, psychology, um, social work. They're all really common and very frequent referrals that I do. But beyond that, I always try and liaise um, very well, I try and liaise with the patients referring medical teams, whether it's via phone or letter or email, because to me, I, I very much believe if you um, commit to really professional and comprehensive communication with GPs and referring geriatricians, not only is it courteous, but it's a great way of educating about red flags for malnutrition. And so you're ultimately, by doing that, generating other very appropriate referrals for, for people that may get missed in the in the system. I use utilise specialist nursing teams a lot as well. And the, my rationale behind that is often our clients have very trusted relationships already with their home visiting nurses or community clinicians that visit them in their home. Yeah. Um, and often those relationships have been going on for years. So it would be such a missed opportunity not to piggyback off that a little bit. Um, because it's a very effective tool um, for achieving nutrition change. Um, so yeah. to cut back to the basics of that, so if you wanted to communicate with someone who the nursing service or carers that are going into um, a client's home, how do you actually do that? Do you send the client home with something to stick on their fridge or do you actually contact them directly? Contact Is it hard them. to get on to the yeah. right person? Absolutely. Or? So with, with specialist um, nursing, no, it's not hard to. You just need to, to you know, find through the medical records. But with the home pa care package coordinators, um, it can be very difficult. And I have to say with COVID, it's become mm. increasingly difficult. And, you know, I'll sit there and I'll have made 10 phone calls with no response and I'll be, my, my tolerance will be wearing thin. But what I believe jane is if you can establish that relationship with the home care package coordinator just to request things like maybe that the person gets some shopping assistance or that a tin of sustenance be put on their their shopping list or that the home care nurse has added to the list of things that they need to do to do meal set up or give them the ensure drink it makes such a difference to the care um also, the coordinators are the people that often ensure that that ongoing supply of supplements is in someone's house and ordered regularly. Um, and, and they can prov prove as well when you're talking about culturally um, specific home care um, service agencies, they can be a wonderful communication tool when language is a barrier. You know, you can't always cover everything in the, the session mm. you have got things that you need to follow up like if they still got supplements how did they find this and so being able to to go via your home care coordinator is is just so helpful so I always say to people they're your, ears, they're your eyes in the community um so really put in that time to establish that relationship because now I have to say I get phone calls all the time emails from home care coordinators that I haven't remembered but telling me or oh, so and so is suddenly sick of their drink or they don't like the flavour or they've lost weight or maybe their Meals on Wheels meals are accumulating in the fridge. And they're things I wouldn't pick up until the mm. next So it's very, very, um, a very useful relationship to nurture and one I encourage. 
So how often do you, I mean, I know it varies obviously, but what would sort of you'd see someone a couple of times or? Look, generally I'll see someone once and then we'll set them all up. So that might involve a few follow-up emails and phone calls and then I'll see them every six months. Usually they're on the supplement program. So that will, in, in you know, we will be following them up every six months because as we know, older people, their clinical situation changes a lot. So we don't want anything Yes. Um, changing without us picking it up. When weight loss is a little bit more um, drastic or there's food access issues or food security, it could be as often as two to two months, three months that we're reviewing them. Yeah. But generally it's a standard six monthly. And you mentioned that they're generally the patients are pretty motivated yeah. when they come. Does that mean that they're quite open to making the changes that you recommend because we know that uh, it's probably stereotyping people but older people can be particularly stubborn in their ways <laughs> not totally not, open. not denying that at all there's <laughs> one that you know stubborn is yeah would would sum them up and, name. And, <laughs> <laughs> that's right and you know what that's that's goes hand in hand I think with working with with older people but you've learned some some ways to get around that and I think it's really important to establish their motivation point. Why are they there? What's their goal? We might want them to be in their ideal healthy weight range or to be ticking the strain guide to healthy mm. boxes or to, you know, build their muscle mass. We put them on the, the body comp scales and we can see all these benefits. But why are they there? Is it just so they've got a little bit more energy to play with the grandkids? Is it to stay out of a nursing home? Is it, you know, so they don't have to be a burden on anyone? You need to find out what's motivating them to actually get that change. But I have to say, again, that's something I collect a lot of data on and we get some great results looking at, you know, we, we compare people who come for, the, for their initial appointments and we look at, you know, how many have reframed their nutrition, how many are having mid-meals, how many are, you know, doing this, doing that. And then we compare it with data from our review appointments and huge increases. Oh, you know, really? improvements in MNA um, scores number I think the number of mid meals is up to 97% of them are having mid meals and things like that so we can see definite you know wonderful outcomes happening so they are a motivated group of course we'll have the ones that that don't but I have to say they're fewer and far further between than yeah what you think well that's reassuring isn't it because <laughs> I, I guess we do you you can be overwhelmed with the the challenges and barriers that um this client type yeah. present to you and so to see that you're having a difference and also I guess it, it's motivating them with your next lot of clients that you know that this is and you can also talk about your past experience with other clients that uh, they've uh, done this and that it's been really successful yeah, and look, the ones that aren't motivated, you know, they're the ones that won't come in the beginning. Mm. Our fa- failure to attend rate sits at about 6% on right. average, which isn't very high. No. We try and we have three points of screening them so they have the opportunity to decline. So we try not to waste clinic spots by letting people come that, you know, don't want to change. And we also, I also try and... Um, send some pre-information out to people before they attend the clinic so they understand what the purpose of, you know, and, and that, so they can fill in their diet history and they can write down how much weight they've lost. So they they sort of get a bit of a feel of what we're trying to achieve here and 
what the benefits are. For and them. I guess also, I mean, that's just a good point in itself that it gives them time to think through those questions because putting them on the spot and asking yes. things, I mean, you can ask me sometimes what I had for lunch yesterday, I can't remember. Oh, so no. it gives people right. the time. So when they come, they're perhaps not as sort of frightened or, yeah. you know, they've got the information with them and they're not and being it- put on the spot. That's right. It's good for the families as well because it gives them a united thing to work on, especially if there's been conflict over food, which we know, you know, when poor appetite is existing, there's often a lot of conflict. And so it sort of gives them this united goal to write down these things and it's a great, you know, communication um, enabler. Yeah. So, so Susan, just... um... In, in summing up, because we're running yeah. <laughs> short of time, but um, any dietitians that, and I think we see a lot probably of um, less experienced dietitians moving into this space because they're going into private practising um, positions or they're in a community position and so they are faced with these clients and don't have the benefits of, of your experience. What would sort of your key pieces of advice be to to dietitians working with this client group okay i've got some to rattle off one don't underestimate the complexities of malnutrition so really keep that holistic approach look for everything because sometimes it's the the things that are so easy and so obvious that get missed by everyone Mm. um take time to establish rapport so take that first five or ten minutes to look at the photos of the grandkids, talk about the dog, you know, ask them about where they're living because if you can get that trusted relationship, you're halfway there to getting their trust in, in sort of believing what you're saying about nutrition. Give people dignity, respect what they know and validate that, yes, you know, they've often brought up children. They've done the cooking in their house for longer than you've been alive. They've looked after sick loved, ones, sick loved ones and cared for them. So I think if you really want to get engagement, validate that. Tell them you you know that they know stuff and you're not professing to be the, you know, the absolute expert that you're able to help them at this particular point in time because that goes a long way to getting engagement. Except that a fix is not always possible, okay? So we can't always make it go from woe to perfect, But every little optimising change brings a bit more empowerment for the person that you're helping. Revisit, I said this before, revisit what the client's goals are because they may be very different to what your own are. Identify their motivator. Remember, malnutrition is a complex issue and often the bedside or an acute setting isn't the place to get results. So think about how maybe you can redirect the service to a a, a more appropriate one where you are going to get better outcomes. The last two, food first is fabulous. And I talk about this to students all the time. It's something we're taught at uni and definitely agree with it. But jumping straight into supplements is also very appropriate. And I'm not colluding with supplement companies here, but sometimes it means you're really understanding a patient's dynamics and their needs and you're individualizing and targeting their care in the best possible way. So don't feel guilty or unethical or like you're a bad dietitian if you do that. And link patients in for follow-up. Malnutrition happens for a reason. So don't expect that it won't worsen. Just because you've been involved for maybe an hour in the clinic, you've, if you can't monitor, make sure you're linking them in with the GP or community teams to monitor because it's by spreading the message that community malnutrition is going to, by, sorry, spreading the message, that's how we're going to address community malnutrition one person at a time. 
So they're my take-home messages. And I guess just going on from that, for dietitians who might be in an acute care setting as their primary workplace and don't have a malnutrition intervention clinic accessible, it's really important for them to find out where they can refer these people to because they need to have that access to the community. And it may only be one or two places, but somewhere that you can you can send these patients to. And I think I think your um point about food first is a really good one. And we are it is our default position to go to food first. But I often say if you know I'm ever talking to people about, you know, even nutrition in aged care, my Preferred breakfast is, I'm sorry, but toast, butter and Vegemite. And I don't really care what you like to offer me in terms of food. I would actually rather just have a supplement and still have my toast (laughs) than have to have um, something more complex for breakfast. So it's whatever suits that patient and we shouldn't just um, put our own assumptions onto them. Um, Particularly when we think of multicultural backgrounds as well. Europeans who might like their biscuit in their hot coffee and that's they will not budge. So maybe sort of making that a a, a coffee-flavoured supplement coffee Mm. (laughs) that they put their biscuit in is better than not. So I think just thinking outside the square, knowing what our evidence is, but being prepared to sort of, you know, tweak based on that patient and that's where that patient-focused care comes in. And that should be the expertise that dietitians have to offer to these patients is being able to adapt whatever we know the evidence is into their lifestyle and their plan. So, look, thanks so much for your time and your insights, Susan. Um, To everyone listening, this week, October the 10th to the 14th, is Malnutrition Week, Australia New Zealand, and our theme is to be a nutrition champion Um, and that's what we're trying to push and encourage and to get away maybe from the term malnutrition but be a nutrition champion whatever your setting we have loads of resources for you your colleagues and your patients um, that you can access on the dietitian connection website so we'll put the link to that um, in the show notes Uh, and so we want everyone who's listening to go out and continue to be the nutrition champion and susan thank you so much for um, all your advice and your information today it was really interesting oh thanks thanks for having me jane it was great to be here and share to get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts and if you'd like to support the dietitian connection podcast please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.